Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome Dr. Joan Eflin. Everybody in your audience is getting this message. This overeating, the diet-related diseases, these were done to you for profit. This is not your childhood issue. Yes, once you get the numbing substances out of your system, you're, you're gonna want to be in a safe place where you can work on your childhood issues. It's not self-sabotage, it's not self-loathing. Those are all stressful things that will trigger the addiction. But this is just like any substance use compulsion. It's just the same. It's a bigger number of substances. All of the addicted pathways that can be addicted are addicted. You're surrounded by queuing. It's much, much more difficult to get over than any other addiction ever on the planet because it starts in childhood. Um, but it can be done now. It can be done. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, thank you for pressing play today. Today's episode is an important episode about processed food addiction. And this is a great one-two punch to really understand now the history of processed foods and why these brilliant food addiction scientists have manufactured these hyper-palatable foods and how we could understand it and be more aware and then take action. Joan's gonna share her backstory of being a yo-yo dieter and an angry mom and what she did to overcome her addictions. She's gonna get into the five A's of what's happening with the advertising, affordability, et cetera, of the food processing industry. It's really brilliant, but evil. You'll get to see that. And then she gets into why people struggle with keto, why they fall off. The first three steps to breaking through food addiction, very, very important. And she explains why it's important to accept severe addiction, to be patient, to immerse yourself, to incorporate this structure into your life, relationships, environment, community. She also shared something that was fascinating, how addiction pulls blood flow away from the frontal lobe of your brain, which is where you make decisions. I also asked her about these dietitians and nutritionists and PhDs that I see on TikTok and social media that say food addiction is not real. It's a made up thing. Let's hear her thoughts on that which you'll hear shortly. So you're going to love this conversation with Dr. Joan. I can't wait to bring her on. Before I do, I want to take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Juana Porrio. Bright and informative. Ben brings awesome verve to his podcast. He has a genuine interest in his guests, covering topics from dental health to, of course, the keto diet. There's a lot to unpack here, so be prepared. Highly recommend this for anybody who's interested in their health. Thank you so much, Juana. We do cover different topics because it's health is not just keto and fasting. It is a multifactorial approach, and I'm glad you've been listening, enjoying the topics we cover. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or review, please do so right now, and maybe I'll read and give you a shout out on the next episode. Okay, let's have a conversation with Dr. Joan. Dr. Joan teaches health practitioners how to use food addiction recovery to put diet-related diseases into remission. She is the lead editor and author of the textbook, Processed Food Addiction, selected by the Oprah Winfrey Network as food addictions specialist. She's a fellow 
of the American College of Nutrition and innovator in food addiction recovery programs. Here's Dr. Joan. All right, Dr. Joan, thank you so much for joining me today. We were just talking offline. We met at Low Carb USA in Boca, which is going to be two years from now. And you had a great presentation there. You're doing some great work in the health space. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's start and rewind back to the days when you were what you call an angry mom. <laughs> you, I believe your your kids were born 1983, 1984. Is that correct? 83 and 84. Yeah. I'm 84, by the way, but 1984. Okay. And uh, how did you get started with understanding food addiction, sugar addiction? What, what started to transpire for you back then? So I had the two pregnancies back to back. And after that, I became a yo-yo dieter. I would take off 30 pounds in a year, and then I would put it back on at the end of the year. I would come to that moment, it's like, well, I'm never going to regain that weight. And then it would just, so I would put back in more food, and I would regain the weight. I now know that restricted calorie diet, that's the kind of dieter I was, it was 1200 calories a day, that that was setting me up, that was making my processed food addiction worse. It was aggravating it. So my kids were born in 83 and 84. In 1980, high fructose corn syrup came on the market. And in 1985 to 88, the big tobacco companies came in and bought Kraft Nabisco and General Foods. And then they really started exploiting my sensitive reward system, my addicted brain cells. Um, They brought the addiction business model with them. They had already been experimenting on the addiction business model with sugar for children. We have this absolutely chilling, just like the epitome of, of just evilness, really. Yes. Yeah. In a document that was discovered by University of California, San Francisco researchers, Laura Schmidt, the tobacco companies had to submit like 40,000 documents in as part of their court settlements. And there in this docket, this file of documents is a description of taking the tobacco addiction model element by element and transferring it to sugar for children. It's, it was diabolically effective. So that was the environment into which my children were born and I grew up in a very traumatic, sugar-addicted, caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, processed food-addicted household, which was very emotionally unstable. It was not a safe place to grow up uh, emotionally or physically or even mentally. So when my children were born, I said, I am not going to have this. I'm going to have a really positive, healthy household. The only thing that was available at that time was personal therapy. So I started it, and then I started um, the 12-step groups. I started Codependence Anonymous. I worked these programs hard, you know, I did everything. But what was happening, it didn't help. I was raging. I would go from calm to raging, and it was so, so just, I'll use the word violent, uh, the change in my personality that I would actually leave my body and watch myself doing it. So I wanted that to stop. I wanted that to stop desperately. I did a a lot of training and time spent with a women's healing group. Didn't help. But in the codependence group, there was a woman who could hear the sugar driving my behavior. So a couple of times a year, she was codependent too. She would tell me about getting into food addicts and recovery. I'm like, why? You know, I was in a thin phase. Why would I do that? I don't need to lose weight. Well, finally, I did regain the weight that year. Got the the food plan at the end of the year and started it on January 1st. And it eliminated sugars and flowers. So immediately, I mean, people think, oh, you know, immediate gratification is such a problem because you have to wait. You do not have to wait. So within four days, my cravings were gone. Wow. I had cravings incessantly. I went to kindergarten craving because 
I just learned how to tell time so they would know when the chocolate milk was going. <laughs> <laughs> I had cravings in kindergarten. So um, cravings disappeared. I didn't know that that was possible. And I want everybody in your audience to know that it's entirely possible. It's not normal to think about food when you're not hungry. And we think about food incessantly, obsessively. Yes. Uh, so the cravings went away, the brain fog went away, which had kind of crept in uh, unbeknownst to me, but it went away and the fatigue went away within four days. So this is definitely, this is fun. Yeah. I, I want people to know that, oh, everybody thinks of oh, getting off for processed foods, what a drag, I won't have any fun in my life. No, this is fun. It's really fun. It's fun to find out all the things that you've been told about yourself are not true. <laughs> are hugely true well then my allergies started getting better i wasn't able to go back to work after my kids were born because my eyes were just constantly tearing and nose dripping and sneezing and i couldn't take the medications for it because they gave me really bad headaches so that cleared up i had had a lifelong sinus infection which cleared up like startling these things happening the bloating was going on i was eating a ton of food it seemed like i i mean i just remember being a restricted calorie dieter just like i'm never going to lose weight on this there's way too much food and there i was losing two pounds a week so i felt like i was winning the lottery every day this is 1996 we didn't have common knowledge about the effects of getting off of and that was just the sugars and flowers and then in the third week, I was, I can tell you exactly where I was standing in my kitchen in Houston, Texas, was in the evening, and I had this earth-shattering thought. I haven't yelled at anybody in three weeks. I haven't had to correct anybody. I haven't had to criticize anybody. I haven't had to turn anybody around in three weeks. And it's just like, oh my gosh. This must have something to do with the food. And I went to the support group that weekend. Fortunately, I had been going and I was just like, does anybody get less irritable on this food plan? 20 people in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, all that therapy, all those women's groups and all those. And it was the food. It was specifically the refined carbohydrates. Well, that was the day, that was the moment that I adopted this as a career. And I've done, uh, you know, for the last 26 years, just day and night. I'm, I'm finally getting my workaholism under control. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you, love what, I, you love what you do, so it's not really work most of the time, I imagine. Well, yeah, it's very easy. Addictions are very, you got to watch them like a hot, they, they will slide around. So I got off the sugar and flour and I, you know, I had to find something to do. I wrote a popular book and then I went back to school and, and got my PhD in addictive nutrition. And I was writing papers and chapters for other books. And then I got my doctoral divorce. <laughs> I also got tired of seeing my back at the computer. And, but I used the divorce settlement to start a prepared meal company. I still didn't understand what an addiction is. Imagine. Addictions just seem so mysterious. Now I know it's not mysterious at all. But I just thought, oh, you know, I'll give people clean food and uh, they'll feel so much better. And then they'll just they'll just subscribe to my, my service and I'll have a great business and people will just see. Well, that's like saying, oh, alcoholic. Oh, well, I'll just deliver you this really fantastic water and then you'll be okay. You'll see how great you feel mm -hmm. and then you'll be okay. That is not how addiction recovery works. <laughs> if only it was that easy, right? <laughs> no, if only, yeah. So 2014, two things happened. My dad died and left me enough of an inheritance that I could live on it. And a CRC press came along and asked me to write the textbook for the field. There are only two people on the planet with PhDs in addictive nutrition. Kathleen de Maison, who wrote Potatoes Not Prozac, she's the other one. So I said, yeah, and this is going to work out great because my 
91-year-old stepmom, was on her own in Cincinnati. So we moved back to Cincinnati. It took three years full-time to write the textbook. It is uh, written on the basis of 2,000 studies. I looked at probably six or 8,000 studies, and I picked out 2,000 studies, and I got a really incredible group of co-authors and contributors. And it was in the course of writing the textbook that I finally understood what does it mean to have a severe addiction, which is what we have, and that people have been deeply traumatized by having the addiction from a lot of different angles. So here I am today. We did, based on the textbook, start an immersion support system. I could see how bad it was. And I could see why nothing else works and why people can't just adopt a food plan like an alcoholic can't just switch over and drink water. The tobacco industry did a diabolically effective job of hiding addictive substances in the food, sugar, fat, salt, just like they hid extra nicotine in the cigarettes. It's part of the addiction business model. And they were able to just get over 70% of the country is the U.S. is now overweight or obese. Yeah. We were able to get us really deeply addicted without us knowing it. Like they mm -hmm. got us addicted to cigarettes without us knowing it. Yeah, it's, it's diabolical, like you said. And, and the thing with sugar is, you know, it's a drug to your work and your point, but it's a socially acceptable drug. Like you have these drug dealers at all the gas stations, the grocery stores, the Walgreens, and it's so accessible and cheap, but you don't have cocaine at the gas station. You, you don't have all these other drugs. So it's so socially acceptable. And when you go to a, like a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner, your family members will get offended if you say you don't want to eat that apple pie, you don't want to have that ice cream. So how do you how do you handle situations like that? Like I know a lot of listeners want to do the right thing and eat clean, but they have these social events. How do you handle social events? So when you know what the origin of the problem is, when you know what's going on in your brain, you know exactly what to do. The problem is that the tobacco industry has hyperactivated brain cells in the reward system in the brain. And what does that mean, hyperactivated? It just means that very easily those cells are triggered into releasing a flood of craving thoughts into your head. And those thoughts are strong. They beat out every other system in the brain, including the rational frontal lobe. And those thoughts uh, control behavior. So you just got to keep backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up. Okay, what are the cues? They're called cues. What are the cues or triggers that set off those addicted brain cells? And it's seeing other people eat processed foods. Mm. So what you have to do is you have to retrain those cells. Instead of attaching them to food industry messaging, which is, oh, that's yummy. Everybody's eating that. I should be eating that too. You rewire the association of those cells straight to the pain. I don't eat that because I get a headache. I bite people's head off. I, I can't function. I am asleep. It sets off binging that could last for years. You want to retrain those cells to associate those foods with the pain. It's exactly like learning a new language. So if you want to travel to France and you want to be able to get on a bus, you want to associate the sight of that object, a bus, with the word autobus. So you practice, you get a flashcard. You put bus on one side and you put autobus on the other side. And you reassociate. So you now have the cell in your brain that identifies that as a bus. When you get into France and you get all the French stimulation, you want that brain cell to come up with autobus instead of bus. This is exactly the same thing that you want those addicted brain cells to do. You want them, instead of associating it with yummy, everybody's eating it, I should eat it too, you want it to go straight over to pain, pain, pain. 
so I got to tell you, just like it takes years to really become fluent in another language, it takes years to become fluent in those foods hurt me. I don't care what anybody else is eating. I know my truth. My truth is that it's giving me diabetes and I'm going to lose my legs and go blind and I'm going to be on dialysis and I'm going to have a heart attack and die in my 50s like my father did. And I'm going to have a stroke and be semi-paralyzed. And I'm going to have my you know, skin broken out and my gut in pain and asthma and uh, all the other 140 diseases associated with processed foods. You get that real clarity. It's a great tip. So instead of focusing on how delicious that food will taste, the pizza, the ice cream, whatever it is, focus on the pain that it'll cause you and your low energy levels, low confidence, the weight gain, the yo-yo dieting, whatever it is that comes up for you. And depression, the better you, irritability, depression, anxiety, yep. shame, attention deficit, learning difficulties, poor decision-making, poor impulse control, and memory loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those are terrible and we don't want that. So if you could see that's in your future, if you eat that and you get more clear about that, it'll make you help you make a better decision. The hardest thing for so many of my students is shutting off their mind at night when they want to go to sleep. And it's funny because a lot of them say they wake up tired, already thinking of when they'll go back to bed again, but the exact moment they lay their head down on the pillow, it feels like a machine of crazy what-if thoughts turned on. Does this happen to you? Is your mind racing at night? What I found out is that the brains behind Magnesium Breakthrough have taken it to the next level with a product specifically designed for sleep. It's called Sleep Breakthrough, and it's been a total game changer for me and hundreds of my students. Sleep Breakthrough is a delicious pre-bed drink that combines the power of magnesium with other natural ingredients like valerian roots to help us fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and most importantly, wake up feeling refreshed. Since I started taking Sleep Breakthrough, I've been getting better sleep, tracking it with my Aura Ring, more REM, more deep, higher HRV, and this supplement is something I take with me when I travel, and I travel a lot, and I tend to get poor sleep while traveling, and this really helps me overcome that. So Keto Camper, head over to sleepbreakthrough.com slash Keto Camp, remember camp is spelled with a K, and order now. Oh, and in addition to the discount code we're gonna give you, which is Keto Camp 10, that is Keto Camp 1-0, there are always amazing gifts with your purchase. That's why I love shopping with Bioptimizers. So head to the link down below in the podcast notes or type in sleepbreakthrough.com slash ketocamp. Use the coupon code ketocamp10 at checkout. Go get it. Let me know your thoughts. And I can't wait for you to wake up feeling refreshed. Let's get back to the episode. You mentioned that these tobacco companies do a really good job at marketing and, and making it socially acceptable to, to eat these foods and drink these beverages. Can we get a little bit into the history here? I know you had spoken about Dr. Kellogg's and also these food addiction scientists, one of them, Howard Moskowitz. Can you talk about that, those? Yeah. This is a business model. And as you, you probably know, I have an MBA from Stanford, very old. <laughs> wow. But nonetheless, I grew up and the daughter of a corporate executive and a biochemist. He worked for a consumer goods company and ran a, a big part of their research as a biochemist by training. So I'm very, very interested. And I worked for a corporation for five years after getting out of business school. I am acutely aware of how they can make millions of people sick mm-hmm. and even die. But we saw it in the tobacco industry. Uh, smoking was the leading cause of preventable death in the world. And now diet-related diseases are the leading cause of death in the world based on the same business model. So it was really tobacco that perfected the model. The, the model is the five A's, called the five A's of the addiction business model. It is advertising, availability, affordability, young age of onset, and hidden addictive product formulation. 
So uh, what happened with tobacco? So how did, how did cigarettes get to be so cheap? It was the invention of the rolling machine. And I don't remember his full name, but his name was Duke, somebody Duke, uh, Duke University. It was funded by him. He bought the patents on the rolling machines. And so the fabrication of cigarettes went from being hand rolled in cigarette factories to being machine rolled. And that brought the, the price of a pack of cigarettes down to five cents. Mm. This we were talking the 1920s and 30s. So now uh, millions of people could afford to become addicted. And then they positioned cigarettes as sexy. You know, you got Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart smoking and flirting, and it was so sexy. Oh, I'm going to smoke, so I'll be sexy. This, out of all the examples of how you can deceive the public, if you've ever smoked a cigarette or you've ever gone to kiss somebody who has smoked a cigarette, it is repulsive. It's like <laughs> it's kissing an ashtray. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah. It's like, oh, no. So, you know, I once lost a boyfriend. He was, uh, I was giving him a ride somewhere and he saw my ashtray full of cigarette butts and I could just see him turn off. He was, he never like wanted to get a ride from me again. Yeah. So this is exactly the kind of deceptive advertising. And then you blanket the country with it. You hide the extra addictive products in the product. So the person uses them innocently a couple of times. And then that sets in the cravings. And you, you blanket the country with the advertising, which triggers the cravings. So it's not just the substance that will make those reward centers explode. It's you can cue them, you can trigger them with reminders or associations. Which we see now with like Burger King commercials, billboards, celebrities on these commercials, et cetera. It's so diabolical. It's just, it's unthinkable almost. It's, it's very hard to think about people actually doing these things deliberately. So, for example, so they did, the, the cigarettes are sexy, sexy. The cigarettes are rebellious. That's how they got women roped into smoking. They got the suffragettes. Oh, you, you want to be treated like a man? We'll smoke like a man. <laughs> Virginia Slims, you've come a long way, baby. It's just disgusting. Wow. It's unthinkable. Yeah. So, and, and then with the advertising young age of onset, they, you have the Joe Camel cool campaign, cartoon, see, cartoon campaign. It focused on 10-year-old boys. They wanted to get 10-year-old boys smoking. We have research showing that the younger the person even animals, the younger they are when you addict them, the harder it will be for them to overcome the addiction, actually put the addicted brain cells into remission. The younger and the more often. You can addict any animal to any substance if you get them young enough and you expose them, you ingest the substance often enough. Hmm. Is that because their brain is not fully developed? It's because after that, every brain cell that develops in that brain will be an addicted brain cell. Because mm. it's, it's the addicted brain cells, but then it also controls the locomotion centers. You know, so it, it's actually, that's the first center of the, the brain. If you're in the process of addicting a rat, that's the first part of the brain that becomes hyperactive. It's the locomotion. It's almost like the addiction says, well, I'm going to make sure I can get my human to go to move, to go get the substance. That's my first job. It's, it's incredible. So what do they do? They uh, attacked 10-year-old uh, boys with this Joe Cool Camel campaign. At that time, the government was not yet as corrupt as it is today, and it did step in, and it stopped that. Oh, they did? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, the Joe Camel cartoon campaign got shut down. But then along came processed foods, and mm. there was nobody, nobody to hold the line. And so how did they shift that model over to children and sugar? 
think about the shape and colors of a pack of cigarettes and then think about the shape and color of juice boxes. Mm, very similar. I'm telling you, this is as, as evil as it gets. Yeah. And then um, the Marlboro Man logoed stuff warehouse. You could collect coupons and get stuff out of the warehouse. So the first company they bought was Hawaiian Punch. And pretty soon, like almost right away, they had this character, Punchy. So Punchy became an associative cue, this comical cartoon character. And every time you saw Punchy, you would get cravings for the sugar. They had a Punchy warehouse where you could collect um, Hawaiian Punch coupons and, and retrieve them for toys. Wow. Well, now the toys are in the child's room triggering that child. So fast forward to mid-1980s, as soon as the tobacco industry gets a hold of Kraft, Nabisco, and General Foods, they start to implement these five A's. So they're taking out the cigarette machines. They're replacing them with soda and snack machines, vending machines. Availability, you have to be able to get your hands on it. Fast forward to the 1980s and tobacco, it's got to be strange to everybody that two big tobacco companies bought up 10% of the processed food industry within the space of three years. A couple of things had happened. One, high fructose corn syrup came on the market. Mm -hmm. So the products have to be cheap enough that you can buy them often enough to, to create the addiction. You're, this is Pavlovian conditioning of brain cells. So you have to teach those reward center cells to associate that substance with the this flood of their pleasure neurotransmitters. The high fructose corn syrup came on the market, highly addictive. It converts to fat much, much more easily than sugar. Yep. And that fulfilled one of those five A's. So the tobacco industry didn't have to lean on their fellow drug dealers, the sugar cartel in Florida. Now they had the whole country producing high fructose corn syrup and it was very cheap. The other thing that happened in the early 1980s was the creation of the food pyramid. And the, suddenly the, the whole scenario flipped. Instead of the government coming after tobacco and trying to control it, it was advertising addictive substances. The whole bottom roll of the food pyramid is addictive substances. It's crazy. The breads and, and then there's a little bit of sugar at the top. But the, the tobacco industry must have been like jumping for joy. Oh, my gosh. This is a group of addictive substances that the government is promoting. They hit the jackpot. They did. They did. That's exactly what happened. So they take over those companies. There's a consultant, Howie Moskowitz, Harvard-trained, PhD in experimental psychology of marketing, who has worked out a system to maximize the amount of sugar, fat, salt in processed foods to the exact point to where the customer cannot detect it, or the customer will still accept it as normal food. And he went around, you know, all the processed foods are owned mostly by 10 corporations. So he went around to those 10 corporations. Once one corporation had had their product uh, addictified, uh, then they all had to do it because the consumer would return to the product that they were addicted to. So if you were competing with a pasta sauce that suddenly had and the, the equivalent of two Oreo cookies of sugar in a quarter cup or half cup serving, then you had to put that much sugar in your product too, because no one would buy the non-sugary product because they all would become addicted to the sugary product. So he went around, I looked him up in the internet within the last year, he's worth $45 million. Wow. He's got a whole company dedicated to helping corporations make their products addictive. So, if you yeah. imagine that them using that, because it's pretty brilliant, but it's evil. Imagine them using that brilliance for something that's actually positive to humanity. Yeah, like if Howie Moskowitz had experimented in teaching children to love broccoli, 
right. we'd, we'd be in a completely different situation. Yeah. So that happened. They did. They reformulated the products. Remember, that's one of the A's, addictive product formulation. They ramped up the advertising. And the Saturday morning cartoon shows, even before the mid-1980s, were already showing 150 approximately cartoon commercials for sugary, fatty, salty, highly addictive, destructive foods. And within, I think, about seven years, it was 550. Wow. So they ramped up the advertising to young age. And Nickelodeon carried that commercials load to 65 million households, U.S. households. And we have research out of Stanford showing that it only takes five commercials. I want to go into the study, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. The, the way they structured the study was they took two groups of toddlers. So these are like two-year-olds, one- and two-year-olds. They put them in two different rooms. One group of toddlers got a TV show, one-hour TV show, with five commercials. A commercial at the beginning, every 15 minutes, and at the end for a product, for a toy. The other group got the same TV program, but no commercials. And then they turned them into a room, a big room that was filled with all different kinds of toys. The children who had seen the five commercials all chose that, that toy, or most, you know, it's significantly greater number. And the children who had not seen the commercials chose a variety of toys. It only takes five commercials to influence a toddler, and there they are seeing five in a morning. So within 10 years, the obesity rate among children has increased by 50%. Wow. From you know 10% that, and, to 15. And that's commercials, right? What about social media? What about bill, billboards? What about you know what we see in our environment? It's just all over the place. Yes. So this is why, I mean, you started out with a really, really excellent question of what do you do about social situations? This is why it takes years to be able to go to a social situation and not even see it Mm. and not even be bothered by people you know well uh, who are eating it. The the food industry co-opted a part of the brain called mirror neurons. It's our conformance drive. It's the second most powerful system in the brain because for 7 million years, if you belong to a tribe, you would live. You would have food, shelter, your children would be protected, and you would be protected from predators. So your genes, the the conformance genes got passed on. The I like to go wander off by myself people, they got eaten by predators. They didn't get, they wouldn't live long enough to pass on their genes. So we have, we have controlling, I would say controlling conformance drive. And the food industry uses advertising to hijack, to kidnap, conformance drive. Oh, if you see people eating these products on television over and over again, or your Facebook feed has got people eating these products or promoting these products or the products themselves, then your conformance drive will helplessly lead you to eat them. If you go to a social event and people whom you know well are eating these foods, uh, the conformance drive is especially activated by food and people whom mm-hmm. you know well. The better you know a person, the more likely they are to be able to trigger you into eating something bad. So that's what happens at a social event. But what we did when I when I got the manuscript turned in for the textbook, pretty soon thereafter, Zoom came on. So Zoom, I turned it in the manuscript in in the middle of 2017. And then at the end of 2017, I met Zoom for the first time. And I thought, oh, 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 we could we could do the level of immersion that people need. Like if you're if you want to learn a new language, you go to an immersion class, you immerse yourself in the language. That's exactly what is needed if somebody wants to get control of their thinking and their behavior. They want the cravings to stop and and reality to take its place. Oh no, that make me so sick, are you kidding? Then that's why we developed the immersion program. Turns out Zoom works perfectly for that. That's terrific, what a blessing. 
Yeah, it is. It is. It's like the forces of destruction are met with the forces of protection. Yes. It's amazing that these two things came along. So that's what we have done. That's what happened. I hope everybody in your audience is getting this message. This overeating, the diet-related diseases, these were done to you mm-hmm. for profit. This is not your childhood issue. Yes, once you get the numbing substances out of your system, you're, you're going to want to be in a safe place where you can work on your childhood issues. It's not self-sabotage. It's not self-loathing. Those are all stressful things that will trigger the addiction. But this is just like any substance use compulsion. It's just the same. It's a bigger number of substances. All of the addicted pathways that can be addicted are addicted. You're surrounded by queuing. It's much, much more difficult to get over than any other addiction ever on the planet because it starts in childhood. Um, But it can be done now. It can be done. It's very empowering. Uh, And I want to ask kind of a controversial question here. And uh, it's about the vaccine, but I don't want to talk about should we get the vaccine or not get the vaccine. But the question is this, do you see the same type of advertising that happened with tobacco and sugar happening with the vaccine? And what are your thoughts on offering free donuts for those who get a vaccine? Oh, jeez. <laughs> you see the complicity and the corruption of particularly the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, since we're, since we're drifting over into controversial topics, I'm going to say <laughs> something and then I will back it up. Okay. If COVID hadn't come in on the top of processed food addiction epidemics, we wouldn't have had COVID. Mm. So you see 60% of COVID deaths are in people who have an underlying diet condition, diet-related condition, and they wouldn't have been able to eat enough processed foods to get that condition unless they were being driven by the addiction. Yeah. That's a very valid point. You very, think so? Very... Thank you. I do. No, I, I, I believe I believe the message should be about metabolic. It should have always been about metabolic health, but especially now. So to, to, to answer the question, are, do you see that advertising going on with the vaccine like you saw it, like you see it with sugar? Yes. And so the, the addiction business model is um, used by quite a few industries. And clearly alcohol, vaping, marijuana, and the pharmaceutical industry used it for the opiate crisis. And yes, it's the addiction business model is used by the pharmaceutical industry. When you saw, you began in my lifetime to see the pharmaceutical industry advertising directly to consumers, ask your doctor to prescribe this for you. Oh my gosh. I mean, they just showed their hand. We Mm -hmm. don't really care about whether you need this medication. We're going to take the power of evaluating whether you need this medication out of the doctor's hands. And we are going to deceive the end user. We're going straight to the end user and we're going to use Pavlovian conditioning, repeat messaging, advertising to make them believe that they have this disease. If you tell somebody they have a disease, their brain will get busy and create that disease in them. I am absolutely clear on that. Belief systems have a huge impact on disease creation and disease remission. So if you can put that idea in people's heads often enough that they need this medication, their conformance drive will kick in. Oh, Mm -hmm. everybody's taking this medication. I better get on this medication. It is a very similar business model. Yeah, I see it because you go on Google and some days you'll see the the letters, you know, with band-aids and like needles around it, right? It's like a subconscious little jab, if you, no pun intended, but it's kind of showing you like, hey, it's normal. And then you go and watch Jimmy Kimmel live or you watch these other talk show hosts and they're talking about it and how normal it is. But not only that, they're talking about you're, you know, pretty much evil if you're not getting it. So it's... um even to a new level that I've never seen it before. And it's really interesting what's going on. 
The thing that's very hard for me about watching how this epidemic has been handled is that there are other ways. Uh, clearly, you know, that you see the list, social distancing, masks, and um, wash your hands. Well, at the top of that list should have been eat clean. So I think that's how you see the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. They don't want people to get complacent about the, the epidemic. They don't want people to use other methods to reduce the risk. And you don't see things like, I've been studying breathing methods and looking at the research on breathing methods. There are some breathing methods that have been shown because they do the blood draws while the person's doing the, the breathing exercise to increase immunity. Processed foods depress immunity. They wear out the immune system. They wear out the inflammatory system, inflammation control. Processed foods are inflammatory. And so you see these easy to do, uh, very effective methods not being promoted. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Keto Camper, I wanna just pause for a second and tell you about my favorite drink for metabolic health. On this podcast, we talk about the importance of metabolic health, metabolic flexibility. Well, this is called Good Idea, and it is a great idea if you're trying to reduce blood sugar and keep your insulin levels in a healthy range. It has zero calories, zero sweeteners, and none of the junk ingredients, and it tastes like a lightly sparkling water. I call it a functional sparkling water because it has been clinically tested and shown to reduce blood sugar spikes after a meal. It contains a blend of amino acids and chromium piclinate. Together, they slow gastric emptying and increase insulin sensitivity, allowing a steady release of glucose in the bloodstream where it can be transferred into the cells for fuel. It also contains zinc and potassium as an added benefit. They hooked you all up with a special coupon code. So all you need to do is head over to goodidea.us and apply the coupon code BEN, that is B-E-N, at checkout at goodidea.us. I'm going to drop that link in the podcast notes along with the coupon code. All right, let's get back to this episode. Let's talk about something else that I know is going to light you up, <laughs> and that is... When I look on social media, whether it's like Instagram or TikTok, and I see some other individuals who might have a PhD or they're a dietitian or nutritionist, I see some of them say that sugar addiction is made up and it's it's not even a real thing. So what would you say to those who are saying it's a made up thing? Yeah, so um, we just um, promoted a, a workshop and you're... You can get this, Ben, if you want. Uh, we have the recording of it coming out next week. Yeah, please share. Where? With two dietitians. You can get on the email list at processfoodaddiction.com. Okay. But we had two registered dietitians, one from our own Addiction Reset community, and then one, Michelle Hearn, who is the author of The Dietitian's Dilemma. So Sally Johnson and Michelle Hearn did this. And it's the 10 mistakes your dietitian may make. To get this into the right context, people really need to know that the dietitians are the professional, quote unquote, professional arm of the processed food industry. Mm. So their job is to sell processed foods. And the, the medical community is the marketing arm of the pharmaceutical industry. So once you know those things, you know, okay, if I am convinced I need a medication, I will go to my doctor. If I am convinced that I need to like, understand how to ingest processed foods, I will go to a, a dietitian. I mean, that's yeah. not entirely fair. But once you know that 40% of dietitians work for the processed food industry, if you've ever been to, and I did go to one, if you've ever been to a conference, an annual conference of the dietitians, you walk in, the biggest, like, huge display is craft. Mm -hmm. And Nabisco is right next to it. So they are, the dietitians are the processed food industry. Now, I will say that there are dietitians who are rebelling vehemently against that. And Michelle and Sally are two of them. 
And if you are a dietitian and you're listening to this and you want to hook up with people who are looking for ways to keep dietitians safe while they stop recommending toxic processed foods, uh, do connect with us. Um, just fill out one of the forms at processedfoodaddiction.com. We'll put your website in the in the show notes. And yeah, and, and, and if, yeah, of course. And if somebody needs to verify this with actual research, then your book, which is called Processed Food Addiction, has enough resources to make the case, which we'll put a link for as well in the notes. To wrap up the episode, I do want to ask about maybe your, your three steps to breaking through food addiction. And if you could kind of just give a summary of uh, all three of them. Okay. So one is this very, very difficult process of acceptance. Breaking through all the insanity that you see out there and accepting that it's a severe addiction. Okay, and you, you might be able to accept that it's an addiction, but to really get free from it, the process of ex- accepting that it's a severe addiction and that it is deliberately made worse, made more severe by the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry every day, every moment of every day, including children, newborns, at conception that your your genes were already replicating in an addictive manner because your parents were eating processed foods. So accepting that it's a severe addiction and that your government is standing by, letting mm-hmm. the corporations do this, protecting the agricultural industry, et cetera. And standing by is, uh, to put it lightly. <laughs> yeah, I like what Rob Lustig said in the, his book, Metabolical, this year. The USDA is not killing you. They are letting you die. Mm. And sad, I, I just, very sad I and true. Yeah, he, he's got a way of just getting to the truth of things. Yeah. And the second part of acceptance is that you have suffered trauma as a result, going and asking for help and being charged a lot of money and taking up a lot of your time with things that were not the right diagnosis and then being blamed for it not working, things like that. And for me, it was also growing up with emotionally unstable people. My parents didn't choose to be emotionally unstable but they were being told that these substances were enjoyable when in fact they were making them rage and be depressed and hit their children and yell at their children and, you know, just create a very traumatizing household. So that's the acceptance process. And then step two is to uh, be really patient. I will say the part of when you accept that, oh, this is a severe addiction. This is why I can't stop and I'm desperate to stop. But once you get that it's a severe addiction, then the other piece of acceptance is that it's going to be immersion. One of our community members one day said, I finally, I finally get how to think about this. When I'm out and about and when I'm outside the house and doing things, I'm out in the world and I'm, I'm, I'm doing those things. But when I'm in my house, I'm in rehab. Mm. And that is the, we offer 15 hours a day of live programming. There is a live person on that screen. And then we have a big library of videos. So you can play videos between the live events and you can get immersion. And I just want to give people hope in your audience, Ben, that it, it does work and it works pretty darn fast. If, if you can like take a week off of work or even take a four-day weekend and immerse yourself in this messaging, your brain will start to adapt and get control. We've seen it happen in one day. We've seen it happen in four days. But the people who haven't gone through phase one acceptance and they think, oh, well, you know, an hour a week, that's, that's probably all I have, they, it takes much longer. But if you can get through the acceptance piece, I have a severe addiction, it's going to require immersion. Then step two is to get into the program and immerse yourself. And then step three is just to incorporate it into your life. People who have had this have been numbed out and they there are problems in their lives that they haven't been able to get to to solve because the addicted brain cells pull the blood supply away from the frontal lobe 
where you do problem solving. So in that phase three, you're in a community, you're developing routines, you're healing relationships, financial issues, decluttering your house, you know, making your house a nice place to live, developing sleep routines, movement routines, brain care routines. You're sorting through your relationships and kind of backing off the toxic one, being able to identify and then be powerful enough to back off the toxic relationships, replace them with positive relationships. There's the, the food. I say the food is only 20% of recovery. There are a lot of things that have just been neglected in a food addicted person's life. And then you settle into a community that can give you ideas where you can hear how other people are solving problems and you can rewire all the rest of your brain. So rewiring the addicted parts of your brain is not going to give you the fully fulfilled, purposeful, exemplary life that we all deserve. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Uh, so so to, to, to recap what you just said, those three steps in summary are acceptance of a severe addiction, be patient, immerse yourself. It's going to require you to immerse yourself and then incorporate it into your life. And that could be changing the food structure you have in your pantry, your relationships, your environment, your community. And of course, you go a lot more deeper in your work, which we're going to put in the notes of the podcast. What you you just, yeah, of course. And what you just shared was fascinating that addiction pulls blood flow away from the frontal lobe. And that's where you make decisions. Just having that awareness really is empowering to understand what's going on there. Last question for you, Joan. If you're an addict, you have a a severe addiction and, and you do the work, let's say they work with you for several years. Can you go back to eating sugar again? Or are you once an addict, always an addict? Well, yes, you have that Pavlovian conditioning of the addicted brain cells and and that never, they'll never forget. Those brain Mm -hmm. cells will never forget that uh, when you do those substances, their job is to flood your brain with cravings. So the way I like to think about this is once you're immersed in a community that doesn't eat that, I know this is very hard to envision, but once your conformance drive is safely latched on to people who don't eat it, the idea of eating it would just not cross your mind. So the important point here is that, no, you're not, you're not condemned to a life where I want it, I can't have it. I want it, I can't have it. You're not, that battle goes away. Understood. Yeah. yeah. You see it and it's like, I remember leaving the grocery store one day and I just had this odd feeling in my head. And I really, I stopped and really thought about it. And my brain had categorized the processed food in the grocery store over there with styrofoam. It was an odd thing, but I had been in the ark, immersed in the ark for such a long time that my brain no longer, there was no battle. There was no, oh, I came out of the grocery store, I got all clean food, but I really wish I could have gotten. No, no, the brain had been conditioned, if you will, or taught so deeply that those those are not edible substances. We had a very calm uh, trip to the grocery store because it didn't it didn't identify all those aisles and aisles and aisles. Only one percent of the food in a grocery store is actually food. The rest of it is all drugs. Jeez. It was cool. It was very cool. <laughs> but neutrality is the word. You get yeah. neutral about it. It's, you're not battling it. Yeah, no, I love that. Great explanation there. And you're so right. You know, if you live in a crack house, you're going to do crack. If you leave the crack house and get over that addiction and never go back to the crack house, you're never going to want to do crack again. It's very similar to what you're saying here with sugar. And, yeah, and you, you are the sum total of the five people you see the most. That's right. Jim Rohn said that. He's correct. <laughs> Dr. Joan, thank you so much thank for sh- yeah sharing uh, so much brilliance on the show. I believe the Keto Campers got so much from it. We're going to put all of your your information in the show notes. Any final words for the keto campers? No, just just have hope. There is an answer and you don't have to live with this. Oh, amen. And it's not your fault. That's my final word. It's not your fault. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Joan. We're going to put her website, her social media, 
all of the resources that we spoke about could be found in the podcast notes down below. Please share this episode with somebody who's struggling with food addiction, and this could make a big difference in their life and get them in the right direction of overcoming this addiction for good. We will also put a link for her book, Process Food Addiction, in the podcast notes as well. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. Please leave it a rating and review, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.